0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 324A, by Rudolf Steiner, The Fourth Dimension. This is a section, or I'm calling it a lecture, 10, which is a collection of questions and answers that Steiner gave around the Fourth Dimension. Questions and Answers, Stuttgart, March 11th, 1920. First question. Does my attempt to define the hyper-imaginary through relationships of points on curved surfaces or manifolds, correspond to reality? Second question. Is it possible to acquire an enlivened view of the realm of imaginary numbers? And do actual entities underlie this realm? Third question. Which aspects of modern mathematics and which formal aspects, in particular, need to be developed further along spiritual scientific lines. Rudolf Steiner's answer. Let me begin with your second question. The answer is not easy to formulate, because in order to do so, we must leave the realm of visualization to a very great extent. When I answered Dr. Mueller's question several days ago, you saw that in order to provide a concrete correlate for a mathematical case... I had to turn to the transition from long bones to head bones, and yet the graphic example was still valid. At least in that case we were still able to visualize the objects, and hence the transition from one to another. When we attempt to look at the domain of imaginary numbers as a spiritual reality, we find that we need to shift from positive to negative, as I recently demonstrated in these lectures on physics. This shift makes our ideas true to reality when we attempt to understand certain relationships between so-called ponderable matter and so-called imponderables. But even when we visualize very ordinary domains, we can see the need to transcend customary ways of illustrating them. Let me mention just one example. On a plane drawing of the ordinary spectrum, we can draw a straight line from red through green to violet. Such a drawing, however, does not symbolize all the relevant aspects, which are encompassed only when we draw a curve, more or less in this plane. Reference to a drawing that has not been preserved. To symbolize the red. Then to depict the violet, we go to the board and behind the board, so that the red is seen from above, lies in front of the violet. I would have to move out of the plane for the red and back into it for the violet in order to characterize the violet as moving inward toward chemical activity and the red as moving outward toward warmth. Thus I am forced to expand the straight line here and to see my ordinary drawing as a projection of what I actually ought to draw. To achieve clarity concerning certain phenomena of higher reality, it is not enough to shift from the positive material aspect to the negative, that is, just as unsatisfactory as moving in a straight line from red through green to violet. When we move from the spatial realm to the non-spatial, as symbolized by positive and negative, respectively, we must shift to a higher form of spatial and non-spatial. This process is like moving along a spiral instead of moving around a circle and returning to our starting point. Just as elsewhere two different types may be summed up in a union that contains both, we also can imagine the existence of something that is both spatial and non-spatial. We must seek this third element. In the domain of higher reality, if we describe physical reality as positive, we are obliged to describe the etheric realm, where we leave space and begin to enter spirit, as negative. When we take the step into the astral realm, however, space and negative space are no longer enough. We must turn to a third element that relates to positive and negative space in exactly the same way that imaginary numbers relate to positive and negative numbers in formal mathematics. And if we then take the step from the astral realm to the true being of the I capital, we need a concept that is hyper-imaginary in relationship to the imaginary. For this reason, I have never been happy with academic antipathy to the concept of hyper-imaginary numbers because this concept is truly needed when we ascend to the level of the I, and cannot be omitted unless we want our mathematical formulations to leave the realm of reality. This issue is simply how to use the concept correctly in purely formal mathematics. Someone I met today discussed the problem of probability, a question that very clearly demonstrates the great difficulty of relating a mathematical procedure to reality. Insurance companies can calculate when a person is likely to die, and their figures are very accurate when applied to groups. It is impossible, however, to conclude from actuarial figures that any individual is going to die exactly in the year that is predicted. Consequently, these calculations lack reality. The results of calculations are often correct in a formal respect, yet do not correspond to reality. We also might have to rectify the formal aspects of mathematics in some instances to accord with such results of hyper-empirical reality. For example, is it correct to state that A times B equals zero is true only when one of the factors is zero? When either A or B is equal to zero, their product certainly is zero. But is it possible for the product to equal zero when neither of the two factors is zero? Indeed, this might be possible if the reality of the situation forced us to turn to hyper imaginary numbers, which are the correlates of hyper empirical reality. We must indeed attempt to clarify the relationship of real to imaginary numbers and the relationship of hyper-imaginary numbers to imaginary and real numbers. But we also may have to modify the rules governing calculations. With regard to your first question, in the human being we can distinguish only what lies above a certain level and below a certain level. I explain this to almost everyone I think will be able to understand it. To anyone who looks at the wooden sculpture in Dornach, of Christ in the center as the representative of humanity, with Ahriman and Lucifer on either side, I explain that we truly must imagine the human beings we encounter as existing in a state of balance. On one side is the supra-sensible, on the other the subsensible. Each human being always represents only the state of balance between the supersensible and the subsensible. Of course, the human being is a microcosm of sorts, and as such is related to the macrocosm. Therefore, we must be able to express the connection between each detail of the human being and a corresponding phenomenon in the macrocosm. Let me illustrate it like this. If this is the plane of balance, reference to a drawing that has not been preserved, and I imagine the sub-sensible element in the human being has a closed curve and the supra-sensible element, or what human beings have in their consciousness, as an open curve, the resulting form is knotted below and opens outward above. This also represents how the human being is incorporated into the macrocosm. This lower knob-like area pulls us out of the macrocosm, while The open curve of this upper surface incorporates us into the macrocosm. Here is the approximate location of freely-willed human decisions. Above the level of free will, human forces are allowed to move out into the macrocosm. Everything below this level encloses macrocosmic forces so that we can assume a specific form. Within the plane figures formed by this curve, let's note a series of data that I will call X, representing the cosmic thoughts that we can survey. Here we have the cosmic forces that can be surveyed, and here the cosmic movements. If I formulate a function involving these numbers up here, the result corresponds to what is down here in the human being. We need a function of factors x, y, and z. When I attempt to find numbers that express this relationship, however, I cannot find them in the domain of the number system that is available on this plane. In order to connect the supersensible and the subsensible human being, I must resort to equations containing numbers that belong to systems lying on curved surfaces. These surfaces can be more precisely defined as the surfaces lying on paraboloids of revolution. Surfaces that emerge when cones rotate in such a way that each rotating point constantly changes speed. There are also more complicated rotational paraboloids whose points, instead of maintaining fixed relationships among each other, are able to change within the limits of certain laws. Thus the surfaces that serve my purpose are enlivened rotational paraboloids. The relationship I am describing is extremely difficult. To date, certain individuals have imagined it, and the need for it has been discovered. But formal calculations will become possible only once esoteric or spiritual science is able to collaborate with mathematics. The path you have outlined for us today constitutes a beginning, a possible initial response to the challenge to discover what corresponds to the association of related functions that refer to number systems on the surfaces of two rotational paraboloids, one that is closed below and one that is open above, whose vertices meet in one point, As I have described, we would simply need to find the numbers lying on these surfaces, which do indeed correspond to a real situation. With regard to the future development of formal mathematics, I must admit that it seems that much remains to be done and that much is possible. My next comment may do formal mathematics an injustice, since I have been less able to keep up with it in recent years. It has been a long time since I was fully aware of what is going on in this field, and things may have changed. Before the turn of the century, however, I always had the feeling that the papers published in the field of formal mathematics were terribly unconcerned about whether their calculations and operations were actually possible at all, or whether they would need to be modified at a certain point in accordance with some real situation. For example, we can ask what happens when we multiply a one-dimensional manifold by a two-dimensional manifold. Although it is possible to answer such questions, we must nonetheless wonder whether an operation like this corresponds to any reality at all, or even to anything we can imagine. In order to get somewhere, it may be necessary to define clearly the concept of, quote, only calculable. As an example, a long time ago I attempted to prove the Pythagorean theorem in purely numerical terms, without resorting to visual aids. It will be important to formulate the purely arithmetical element so strictly that we do not unwittingly stray into geometry. When we calculate with numbers, as long as we stay with ordinary numbers, they are just numbers, and there is no need to talk about number systems in specific domains of space. When we talk about other numbers, however, imaginary numbers, complex numbers, hypercomplex numbers, hyper-imaginary numbers, we do have to talk about a higher domain of space. You have seen that this is possible, but we have to leave our ordinary space. That is why I feel that before purely formal mathematics sets up numbers that can only be symbolized, and in a certain sense applying additional corresponding points to specific domains of space is symbolization, we must investigate how such higher numbers can be imagined without the help of geometry, that is, in the sense that I can represent a linear function through a series of numbers we would have to answer the question of how to imagine the relationship of positive and negative numbers on a purely elementary level. Although I cannot provide a definitive answer, because I have not concerned myself with the subject and do not know enough about it, Gauss's solution, namely to assume that the difference between positive and negative is purely conceptual, seems inadequate to me. Düring's interpretation of negative numbers as nothing more than subtraction without the minuend seems equally inadequate. Düring accounts for the imaginary number the square root of a negative one in a similar way, but this number is nothing more than an attempt to perform an operation that cannot be carried out in reality, though the notation for it exists. If I have three and nothing, I can subtract from it three remains. The notation for the operation exists, but nothing changes. In During's view, the differential quotient is only a notated operation that does not correspond to anything else. To me, During's approach also seems one-sided, and the solution probably lies in the middle. We will get nowhere in formal mathematics, however, until these problems are solved. Questions and Answers, Stuttgart, March 11, 1920 First question. The question is, does such an understanding correspond to reality? Since what we did in simple geometry also would have to be possible in all domains of mathematics, could understanding mathematical objects as intermediary links between archetype and physical image perhaps serve as a foundation for the types of calculations needed to support the physics presented in this lecture? Second question. Might this be a path to the so-called hyper-empirical realm that we reach by controlling and enhancing our thinking? Steiner's answer. If I understand your first question correctly, you are asking whether we can approach the realm of mathematics as an intermediary stage between archetype and physical image. Let's look at the domains of mathematics from a purely spiritual and empirical perspective. What are the spatial and geometric domains of mathematics? Or were you thinking of arithmetic as well? Answer from Alexander Strakosch, I was thinking of geometry. During this lecture series, I have already suggested parenthetically how we arrive at ordinary geometrical figures. We do not discover them by abstracting from empirical ideas. Initially, mathematical and geometric figures are an intuition of sorts. They are derived from the will nature of the human being. So we can say that when we experience mathematical figures, it is always possible for us to be active and to relate to reality in the mathematical domain. Thus, such figures, even on an empirical level, already represent a type of intermediate stage between external realities, which we can possess only in image form, and the direct contents of being, which we experience inwardly. A spiritually empirical perspective would show that when we understand geometry, we grasp an intermediate stage between archetype and physical image. However, there is something we must still do in order to verify this train of thought. If geometric and mathematical figures are indeed intermediate states between archetype and image, they must have a certain non material ideal attribute that images do not have, though it only becomes so non material in the sphere of images. An image also can be a combination. It does not necessarily correspond to its archetype. Any mere image that we confront need not correspond to an archetype. But if we have an intermediate state that incorporates a certain amount of reality, we need to be able to discover a corresponding specific field of reality, and we cannot combine such domains arbitrarily. We can never combine archetypes in a living way we must seek them out in their own domains, where they are present as distinct experiences. Thus, in order to grasp this middle domain in the right way, what you call the domain of the perceived lawfulness of mathematical objects, we also must understand its construction as an intermediate state between absolute fixed archetypes and a boundless number of images. That is, we would have to interpret all of mathematics, and especially geometry, as inherently mobile, as existing at least in latent form in all of reality. For example, we could not imagine a triangle as immobile, but would have to visualize the full scope of the concept. What is a triangle? A triangle is an area bounded by straight lines, and the sum of its angles is 180 degrees. We would have to imagine the lengths of its three sides as being infinitely variable, and our definition would yield an infinite number of triangles, or a triangle in flux. This way of looking at things would result in a fluid geometry. We would have to be able to prove that this fluid geometry has some significance for the natural kingdom, that it corresponds to an aspect of the law of crystallization for example so the answer to your question is yes this view is indeed based on an idea that corresponds to reality but a great deal remains to be done to make the entire concept clear I must still touch on another subject that plays into all this you see in recent times people have made a habit of taking refuge in higher dimensions when they want to enter higher domains of reality. That was not always the case in the formalism that formed the basis of our conceptions of the occult. In earlier times people said that while we must conceive of ordinary physical figures as three-dimensional, figures belonging to astral space must be seen in the context of a two-dimensional plane. Note that I am now talking about the spheres or planes of existence and therefore the term astral, is used in a sense different from the one I used when talking with Mr. Blumel and describing the steps between the physical body and the I. capital. We must imagine the next level, the Rupa plane, as one-dimensional in scope, and when we imagine the arupa plane, we arrive at a point. In this way we can say that as we move toward more spiritual ideas, the number of dimensions must decrease rather than increase. We are subject to this phenomenon when we move from above to below, as we do, for example, when we attempt the following train of thought. We can distinguish quite well among spirit, soul, and body, but what is the spiritual element in a human being walking around on earth? We must say that this spiritual element is present in an extremely filtered form. We humans owe our abstract thinking to the spirit. It is the spiritual element in us. On its own, it tends to perceive only sense-perceptible objects and events. But the means of perceiving is spiritual. When we trace the spirituality of thinking down into the bodily element, we find that it has an expression in the human physical body, while the more comprehensive spiritual element has no such expression. Crudely speaking, one-third of the spiritual world in which we humans take part has an expression in the physical human body. Moving on to the soul, two-thirds of the spiritual world in which humans take part achieve expression in the physical human body. And when we move on to the physical body, three-thirds has achieved expression. As we move from above to below, we must imagine that in the progression from the archetype to its image, the archetype easily leaves aspects of its being behind. And this phenomenon provides the essential characteristic of our physical aspect. In contrast, as we move upward, we discover new elements that have not been incorporated into the image. As we move downward, however, what we encounter is not merely an image. Reality plays into it. It is not true that at night, when the physical and ether bodies are lying in bed, the astral body and I simply pull out of the body and leave it empty. Higher forces enter the physical and ether bodies, and enliven them, while the astral body and eye are gone. Similarly, an image contains elements that do not originate only in its archetype. These elements enter when the image becomes an image, when it belongs to the entity. Then the interesting question arises, how does a merely imaginatively combined image become a real image? That is when the other subject I mentioned enters in. Let me still comment that when we consider two dimensions, our initial train of thought leads directly to a second that can illuminate the first. All two-dimensional figures can be drawn in two dimensions, but figures that occupy three-dimensional space cannot. Suppose, however, that I begin to sketch a picture using colors instead of drawing in perspective or the like. That is, I copy colors. I supply images of colors. Anyone will admit that I am then incorporating space directly into the plane to form the image. At this point I may ask, does what expresses color in this image lie in any of the three dimensions of space? Is it possible to use colors to suggest something that can replace the three dimensions? Once we have an overview of the element of color, We can arrange colors in a specific way that creates an image of three-dimensionality in two dimensions. Anyone can see that all blues tend to recede, while reds and yellows advance. Thus, simply by supplying color, we express three dimensions. By using the intensive aspect of color to express the extensive aspect of three-dimensionality, we can compress three-dimensionality into two dimensions. By linking other thoughts to this train of thought, we arrive at fluid geometry. And we may indeed be able to expand geometry to incorporate considerations such as this. In mathematics, we can construct congruent triangles A and B. But could we not also discover an expanded mathematical connection between red and blue triangles drawn in a plane? Is it really permissible for me to s- simply to draw the simple lines that form a red triangle in the same way that I draw a blue triangle? Would I not have to state expressly that when I draw a red triangle and a blue one in the same plane, the red one would have to be small just because it is to represent red, while the blue one would have to be large simply because it is blue? Now the question arises, is it possible to incorporate an intensity factor into our geometry so that we can perform calculations with intensities? This would reveal the full significance of how our right and left eyes work together. Stereoscopic vision depends on both eyes working together. In the domain of optics, this phenomenon is the same as grasping my left hand with the right. A being that could never touch one part of its body with another would be physically incapable of conceiving of the I capital. This conception depends on being able to touch one part of my being with another. I can experience myself as an I in space only because of a phenomenon that is slightly hidden by ordinary empiricism, namely the fact that my right and left vision crosses this fact, though it does not encompass the reality of the eye, allow, allows us to form a correct conception of the eye. Now, imagine how our physical ability to conceive of the eye would be affected if our eyes were strongly asymmetrical instead of more or less symmetrical. What if your left eye, for example, was significantly smaller than the right, making your left and right stereoscopic images very different? your left eye would produce a smaller image that it would constantly attempt to enlarge, while your right eye would have to attempt the opposite, namely to reduce the size of its image. These efforts would add an enlivened form of vision to your static stereoscopic vision. Real enlivened vision, however, must be achieved as soon as you even begin to approach imaginative perception. This perception results from constantly having to adapt asymmetrical elements to each other. The central figure in the Dornach sculpture had to be depicted as strongly asymmetrical in order to show that it is ascending to the spirit. It also suggests that every aspect of the human being, for example our stereoscopic vision, is basically a state of balance, constantly deviates toward one or the other pole. We are human because we must continually create a state of balance between above and below, forward and back and left and right. Questions and Answers Dornach, March 30th, 1920 Question How will anthroposophy affect the further evolution of chemistry? Steiner's answer Assuming that we undertake the type of phenomenology described by Dr. Calisco, this question is so all-encompassing that the answer can only be hinted at. First and foremost, we must realize that we would have to develop an appropriate phenomenology. Phenomenology is not simply an arbitrary assemblage of phenomena or experimental results. Real phenomenology is a systematization of phenomena such as that attempted by Goethe in his theory of color. It derives the complicated from the simple, leading back to the foundations where the basic elements of phenomena appear. Of course, I am quite aware that some truly intelligent people will argue that a sophisticated presentation of the connection between qualitative phenomena and archetypal phenomena is not comparable to the way in which complicated geometric relationships are mathematically derived from axioms. This is because geometric relationships are systematized on the basis of intrinsic structure. We experience the further development of mathematics from these axioms as an inherently necessary continuation of the mathematical process, while, on the other hand, we must depend on observing a physical state of affairs when we systematize phenomena and archetypal phenomena. This argument, though it enjoys widespread support, is not valid and is simply the result of an incorrect epistemology, specifically, a confused mingling of the concept of experience with other concepts. This confusion results in part from failure to consider that human subjects shape their own experience. It is impossible to develop a concept of experience without imagining the connection of an object to a human subject. Suppose I confront a Goethean archetypal image. When I make it more complicated, the result is a derivative phenomenon, and I seem to depend on outer experience to support my conclusions. Is there any difference in principle between this subject-object relationship and what happens when I demonstrate mathematically that the sum of the three angles in a triangle is 180 degrees, or when I prove the Pythagorean theorem empirically? Is there really any difference? In fact, there is no difference, as became evident from studies by very gifted 19th and 20th century mathematicians who realized that mathematics ultimately also rests on experience, in the sense in which the so-called empirical sciences use the term. These mathematicians developed non-Euclidean geometries that initially merely supplemented Euclidean geometry. Theoretically, the geometric thought that the three angles of a triangle add up to 380 degrees is indeed possible, though, admittedly, we must presuppose that space has a different rate of curvature. Our ordinary space has regular Euclidean measurements, dimensions, and a rate of curvature of zero. Simply by imagining that space curves more, that is, that its rate of curvature is greater than one, we arrive at statements such as the sum of the three angles of a triangle is greater than 180 degrees. Interesting experiments have been conducted in this field, such as those of Oscar Simony, who has studied the subject in greater detail. Such efforts show that from a certain perspective it is already necessary to say that conclusions we state in mathematical or geometric theorems need empirical verification as much as any phenomenological conclusions. And that is the end of Section 10, or Lecture 10 as I have called it.